Amen. One of the things that's um, coming up in my, in my memories feed on Facebook just now is, is that 10 years ago when Sandy hit, we got pictures coming up because we'd just taken possession of this building. But it was one huge empty warehouse with a couple of offices up front. And in God's wisdom and timing, we were able to become a distribution center. So we had huge trucks offloading pallets of stuff here that went out to areas or need. So this place was stacked with all kinds of stuff and we were ready for it because of the damage that was done. I, 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 was, I was intrigued then at the amount, the extent of the damage because of course, we, we lived in the northeast of Scotland for 15 years and, and trust me, we, we had wild weather living right on the edge of the North Sea, but nothing seemed to move or get damaged. And one of the reasons for that is, for instance, our house was right on the shore. But in the deed to our house, it simply said this. When it said the, the date it was built, it simply said at least 200 years. And it was built out of solid stone. So the walls of our house were three feet thick of solid stone. That stone was blasted out of the shoreline and the house was built on the rock that comprised the shore and it was going nowhere. And it wasn't just because the walls were so thick and the walls were so strong. It was because it was on a foundation that was absolutely going nowhere. And one of the things we've looked to do over the last um, five or six weeks is to focus on what are the foundations for our faith. We're doing it in our midweek teachings, and we're doing it on our Sunday teaching, which we called absolutes. And we're reminding ourselves of the rock we're built on of our biblical belief for our own sake in a day where everybody questions everything. And also so that we can reasonably give an answer to people who ask us why we believe what we believe. So what we've been doing on Sunday mornings is we've been going through the statement of what we believe as a church, which is um, on our website, and uh, you'll find it under the tab that says about us, and then it says um, our beliefs, or what we believe. And then it runs through, and on Sunday mornings we've been looking at the things that we believe. And this morning brings us to this statement. There's a paragraph entitled, About Human Destiny. Death seals the eternal destiny of each person. For all mankind, there will be a resurrection into the spiritual world and a judgment that will determine the fate of each individual. Unbelievers will be separated from God into condemnation. God's judgment will reveal His justice in consigning them to perpetuate in eternal retribution their own rejection of God. Believers will be received into eternal communion with God and will be rewarded for works done in this life. Now that's a very wordy way of simply saying this. We believe 
that at death there is a judgment and some will be separated from God for eternity and others will be welcomed into the presence of God for all eternity. So I want to just look through this this morning and explain why we believe what we believe, want you to be assured of it, and, and, and really um, maybe just to remind us of, of why we do what we do and why this is so important. Uh, and the first thing to, to emphasize is this. The Bible makes it clear that death is the great divider. I'm not talking about between the dead and the living. Death is the great divider because what happens at death, it says, is death seals the eternal destiny of each person. For all mankind, there will be a resurrection and a judgment that will determine the fate of each individual. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 tells us this. People are destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Now, let me just say this. Initially, death was not a part of God's plan. God created this world. He created Adam and Eve. He gave them a place to live in, and there was no death in the picture, but they sinned, and what happened then was it became part of God's punishment for their sin. In Genesis 2 and verse 17, God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So death wasn't part of the plan. But God said, if you eat from that tree, if, and it wasn't all about an apple. I mentioned this the other week. It was all about disobeying God. It was all about saying, I can be my own God. I can call the shots for me. And when Adam and Eve put themselves in that position, then God said, in that day, you will certainly die. They had been pre-warned, but that was what happened. And that became the pattern in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. It says this, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The soul who sins shall die. That's stated quite clearly there in Scripture, and that was God's pronouncement. The soul that sins shall die. In the New Testament, it's put in words that you might be even more familiar with in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, where it says, the wages of sin is death. So death came as the outcome of sin. And because we have all sinned, that means that the sentence of death is upon every one of us. But what the Bible makes clear is that death is not the end. Now, whatever some claim to believe, what we're doing is examining our foundations in the Scripture. And that makes it very clear that death is not the end. And because death is not the end, this is something we cannot afford to get wrong. Hebrews 9, 27, just as people are destined to die once, sentence of death because of sin, and after that, 
to face judgment. There's an after death. Death is a fact. But so is what happens after death. People are destined to die. God decided before we were born when we would leave this earth. But, but let, me, let me just make this clear. Here in, in Hebrews 9.27, where it says, just as people are destined to die once, and after that, the judgment. The, the writer there is talking about mankind in general. And I really want to emphasize this point. Believers are not mankind in general. I want you to get a hold of this. I'm going to expand on this, all right? There's what's being said universally to everybody, but the fact is the people of God, believers in Christ, are a different category because in, in, in the next verse it says this, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those that are waiting for him. I, I, I just want you to notice in this verse, it says, he will appear the second time. Now, that is not the phrase that is generally used, used in the New Testament about the second coming of Christ. So it is not saying that he will come again in, 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 in the sense of a second coming. It simply means he will be seen. Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many, and he will be seen a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. And every believer will see Christ for a second time. And when they see him for the second time, it will be for the consummation of the salvation that he died to purchase for us. We will not see Christ as our judge. We will see Christ as our Savior. Because... In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. And if you should be one of the people who heard that scripture I quoted, that it's appointed to people to die, and after that the judgment, and you kind of got a little bit nervous, I want to tell you, there is no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. You say, well, but, but, but what about, you know, I've messed up from time to time. Yeah, yeah, me too. Not proud of it, but it's happened, right? But the fact is, when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I recognized the sacrifice of Jesus was the covering for all my sin. There is no condemnation awaiting those in Christ Jesus. I, I was at a diner. Uh, <laughs> there's a surprise. Um, <laughs> I love diners. They're just down to earth and for real, right? They're not hoity-toity. There, I, I love it. I fit in there. So I was, a, I was at a diner once, and uh, I'd been eating at the diner, and, uh, and, and Joe was with me, and, and we finished eating, and uh, I said to the server, I'll take the check. He said, that's been covered. I said, oh. He said, there was somebody covered it and didn't want to say who. 
that's cool. So I just hang out at diners nowadays in case I, no, no, no. So, uh, no, he said, somebody covered it. So I said, oh, that's great. I will just leave a tip then. He said, no, they covered the tip. It's like, oh, wow. You know the problem for some of us? We say Jesus paid it in full, but we think we got to leave the tip. We don't have to. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Sometimes that's too huge to take in. It's like, no, I should be paying some of this. No, 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 no. Jesus paid it all. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So some of you might say, well, well what about 2 Corinthians 5.10? And I'd say, wow, congratulations. You can quote the Scripture back to me. All right. So, okay, here we go, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul was talking to Christians here. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us must re may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So, uh, hey, Roger, we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. True. But I know some Greek. And in the Greek language that this was written in, the word that's translated judgment seat is actually the Greek word bema, B-E-M-A, the bema. And, and bema would have been clearly understood by Paul's readers in Corinth in its day. And actually, it's a phrase, it's a word that's taken from the Isthmian Games, where the contestants would compete in the games, the athletic games, and, and there were judges who would watch the whole of the games. And in the end, when the winners were determined, they were taken by the judge to the platform called the Bema, and they were given the victor's laurel wreath. The bema had nothing to do with judgment as we understand it. What the bema actually referred to was the place where those who had participated in the games went to get their rewards. We will all appear before the bema seat of Christ. That's the place where Jesus says, well done. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, it talks about various crowns that will be given to people on those days. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. We will all die after death comes judgment. The judgment for the believer is the bema seat. The judgment for the believer isn't actually judgment, it's reward. And the New Testament speaks quite extensively about rewards. Don't ask me to explain all the ins and outs of it. I don't understand it all. I just believe it all. No judgment, no condemnation for the believer. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, it says this, in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets first prize. So run your race to win. Hey, that's the encouragement for us. We're not running the race so that we won't get condemned condemnation has been lifted. We're running the race because we dearly want Jesus to say, well done. That's our motivation. That is our incentive. We're in a spiritual contest competition. 
and we look to receive our reward. The judge at the Bema seat bestowed rewards on the winners. He did not punish the losers. That's not what it's talking about. But death is the great divider. So those who die in faith and know the Lord will go to the Bema seat where Christ will reward them. But, but the fact is this, unbelievers will face judgment. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So those who do not know Christ or own Christ, there is judgment that follows death. The books are open, which are the record of their transgressions. The files are scanned to see if their name is in the book of life. And if their name is not in the book of life, the Bible says they were thrown into the lake of fire. So death is the great divider. The believers go to the Bema seat for rewards. The unbelievers go to the judgment seat. So the next thing I, I, I want to pick out from that statement we make about the afterlife is this that hell is for real. That's an unpopular statement to make, and I don't relish making the statement, but I've got to. Hell is for real. So what we say in that statement of our beliefs is that unbelievers will be separated from God into condemnation. God's judgment will reveal His justice in consigning them to perpetuate in eternal retribution their own rejection of God. That's an important statement, actually. They will perpetuate in eternal retribution their own rejection of God. People will be separated from God because they've lived in a way that says, I don't want God. And so the time comes when God says, okay, okay. Their choice, their choice. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about hell just now, and, and, and um, I'm probably not going to get to saying much about heaven, but that's okay for this morning, I think, because Jesus talked more about hell than He did about heaven. Did you know that? He actually said way more about hell than He did about heaven. You see, we all want people to come to know Christ. That's our goal. That's our mission. That's what we are about as a church. We want people to come to know Christ. But, but if you were to dig a little deeper and say, why? 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 To make them nicer people to live with and to be around? Well, thank God that generally happens when someone comes to Christ. But that's not really it. Why? So that they'll live life with better values and have a more fulfilling life? Hey, that does happen as well. So that they'll find peace at last? That happens too. But basically, we want people to come to faith in Christ 
for a far greater reason still than any of those. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19, the Bible says this, if only for this life we have hope of Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If, if coming to faith in Christ only impacts this life, the Bible says we're to be pitied. You know why we're to be pitied? Because this life is only the smallest possible speck of eternity. And if our faith in Christ only sets us up for the rest of our time on earth, then the fact is, Paul says, that's, that's, that's not enough. It's pathetically not enough. But what we need is a faith in Christ that not only changes the here and now, but we need a faith in Christ that is going to open the door to life that's everlasting. The earliest message of the New Testament was a stark one. It was John the Baptist preaching, and you'll read this in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. And John's message was, flee from the coming wrath. Flee from the coming wrath. His warning was of coming judgment from God, and he said you need to run to avoid God's judgment. In fact, here, here's the Bible message in a nutshell, in a verse you all know from heart. Charlotte quoted it last Sunday. John chapter 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, don't miss this last bit, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know what that means? That means those who refuse to believe in him will perish and will not have eternal life. Our mission is to rescue people from hell. And for the curious, now some of you are aware of this, that every now and again I pop up wearing a T-shirt that says hell on it, and you think, that's nice. The front actually says, within a yard of hell. The back of it gives one of my favorite quotes from a missionary by the name of C.T. Studd, who said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I read those words when I was in my mid-teens, and sensing God calling me to ministry, and I determined that what I wanted to focus on was rescuing people who were on their way to hell. What we do is so vitally important. What we're about here is actually sobering business. We enjoy it a lot, and we enjoy one another's company a lot, and we have fun, and we laugh a lot. But, but, but that, doesn't, that doesn't kind of mask the fact that undergirding this is a mission that is of the utmost urgency. Because without Jesus, people are lost. Our mission is to actually rescue people from hell. Now, in the process, they will be freed from sin. They will be healed from pains of life. They'll be released from their chains. They'll discover fresh purpose. They'll find peace with God. They'll know the joy of the Lord. But here's the bottom line. 
1 John 3, 14, they'll come to know they've passed from death to life. And that's what we need to work at. It's a making sure as many people as God brings our way pass from death to life. There's an interesting story in the 19th chapter of Acts about um, a man who was trying to help people who were being tormented by demonic spirits. Uh, and and he, he tried all that he knew. He said, you know, I'm telling you in the name of Jesus, let them go. That didn't work. I'm telling you in the name of Paul, use the apostle's name, let them go. That didn't work. And then this demonized man spoke to them. And, and, and here, here's what he said in, in, in Acts chapter 19, or, or the demonic forces said, they said, I know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And the guy attacked the, 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 the chap who was trying to help him, and he attacked him and beat him up and, and left him in a very bad way. I know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? He, here's something. I know my name is written in heaven, but I'd like my name to be known in hell. I'd like hell to know who I am. The day I leave this earth, Jesus will welcome me. I'd like to think the devil might breathe a slight sigh of relief. Because what we are about is plundering hell to populate heaven. I'd rather be known in hell than admired in this earth. There's serious stuff at stake. Mark 16, 16, Jesus said this as he sent his disciples out to preach. He said, whoever believes and is baptized is saved. Whoever refuses to believe is damned. Now, some of you may say, well, surely God's not going to… Listen, I'm just telling you what's in the book, and it's not my place to rewrite it, and it's not my place to water it down. If someone refuses to believe, Jesus said, they will be damned. So, you may say, well, how, how does a loving God, like, how, how, what's the deal with hell from God's perspective? Well, in Matthew 25, 41, um, here's what Jesus said to some of the religious people. I bet they didn't like this. He said, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That was the start of the whole thing, that when, when Lucifer, who was one of the angels, rebelled against God, God threw him out of heaven and he condemned him to hell. And hell was prepared and reserved for the devil and those who followed him. It is the destination of those who reject Christ by their personal choice. Psalm 9 verse 17 puts it bluntly. It says, the wicked shall be turned into hell. Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades, hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, 
I read everything the Bible says, and I've read it about heaven and describing heaven. And people say, do you think the streets will be really be made of gold in heaven? And it's like, I don't know. Do you think the gates of heaven will all have precious jewels? Because they're described that way in Revelation. Were they really? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if God was trying to describe for us the indescribable. So he used pictures of the most amazing, extravagant things that he possibly could to try to convey it to us. I don't know. Do, what, do I believe that hell's going to have literal flames and literal fire? I don't know. God's trying to describe to us a condition that's so awful, it's probably bad, it's probably impossible for us to grasp it. As much as we can't fully understand what heaven will be like, we cannot fully understand what hell will be like. The Bible does make it clear that it says it will be a place of unspeakable sorrow, of unsatisfied craving, of unquenchable flames. And it does say that hell is going to be forever. Revelation 20 and verse 10. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A great preacher of the beginning of the last century in, in, in London, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said this, in hell there is no hope. The damned have not even the hope of dying, the hope of being annihilated. They are forever, forever, forever lost. On every chain in hell there is written forever. In the fires there blaze out the words forever. Above their heads they read forever. Their hearts are pained with the thought, this is forever. But let me say this. Jesus came because God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it tells us, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God made a way so that everyone can find eternal life through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. Jesus died so that no one need know eternal death. Jesus died so he could open the gate to heaven for everyone who believed. Hell is for real. And let me just very briefly just touch on this just now. One of the things I, I believe and that are in our statement of belief is that heaven is assured for the believer. Heaven is assured. Thank God. Believers will be received into eternal communion with God and will be rewarded for works done in this life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, it says this, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. For the believer, it's very clear. If I'm not here, I'm there. Done deal. Done deal. For everyone who knows the Lord, heaven is assured.
But we must never let church digress into a holy club for those who are already saved. It must be a rescue shop for those who are in peril of eternal loss. When, when I was a teenager, um, I went through what for me was quite traumatic. Our pastor resigned and we had a new pastor who came to our church. And, and I'd come to Christ under the, the ministry of the old pastor and was quite close to him and his family. And it was quite traumatic to see them go and a new pastor come. And, um, but, but I soon developed a really good rapport with our new pastor. He was like 30 years old at the time and I was 16. And um, there was a group of us in the church and uh, around the same age. And often on a Sunday night, because we did Sunday morning service and Sunday night service, after the Sunday night service, he, he'd say to us, hey, do you want to come hang out at our house? And it's like, I can't believe a pastor did that. I'm just going by my own sad, pathetic standards. It's like after a morning service and an evening service, I just want to sit back. I'm sorry, if, but that's it. You know, I, I just want to, okay, time for me to just breathe and relax. But, but we'd go there, a gang of teenagers, and we'd kind of, you know, we're just a gang of normal teenagers, so we'd be goofing off and laughing, and, 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 and he was a great guy to be around. We'd have a lot of fun. Um, but I said to his wife one Sunday night, I said, is it too much for him really at the end of the day? Isn't this a lot for you all to have us here? She said, Roger, it's really good that you do this. I said, you know, if we come to the end of the Sunday and he's not aware of someone who's come to put their faith in Jesus, he comes home so discouraged and you know what? He gets physically sick. He throws up because he feels so disheartened that nobody came to faith in Jesus that day. And when I first heard that, my thought was, you know, that's a pity that, you know, he allows that to be the comment on his ministry. But I came to realize it wasn't just that he wanted people to come to Christ, then he felt good about what he's done. It wasn't that. He so cared about lost people, that he didn't want a Sunday to go by, but that someone had come to faith in Jesus. I remember years ago, there was someone fell out with me because I passed the comment, and some of you heard this many times. The most important person here today is a person here who doesn't yet know Jesus. And this long-standing Christian wanted to feel they were the most important. They're not here now, of course. Because what we're all about is helping people find faith in Jesus. In Scotland, almost 200 years ago, there was a, there, there was a Scottish minister by the name of Robert Murray McShane. That's a name, isn't it? Robert Murray McShane. And he went through a period in his church where, where it seems as if God was doing marvelous things week after week after week, and hundreds of people came to faith in Christ. And six months after he died, in 1843, a young, a young Scottish minister went to his church in the city of Dundee, to McShane's church, and he was curious to find out the secret 
of McShane being so successful in reaching the lost. And an old man in the church took this young pastor to McShane's office and to his desk, and he said to him, put your elbows on the desk and place your forehead in your hands and let the tears flow. And then he took the young man out into the church itself, into McShane's pulpit. And he said, now put your elbows on the pulpit, your forehead in your hands, and let the tears flow. Robert Murray McShane saw God do some incredible things because he had a passion for those that are lost. Let's never lose that. Let's never lose that. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. We're not here for us. We're here for the people who aren't here yet. We thank God our eternity is secure. But there are so many people who are going down a pathway that leads to destruction. And we are here for them. Let's never lose sight of that. After, after McShane had died, his family found a letter in his jacket pocket that was addressed to him. It was written by a man who'd heard him preach the last Sunday that he'd preached before he passed. And in it, the man wrote that he had come to the church unconverted. But the sight of the passion in McShane's face, not the sermon itself, had so gripped him that he sat in his pew and he gave his life to Jesus. May God help us that a love for those who need Jesus will be so apparent in us that it has an impact on those around us who need the Lord. That was summed up perhaps in, in, in these few lines, which goes like this. "'Twas not the truth you taught to you so clear, to me so dim. But when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. Yes, from your eyes he beckoned me, from your heart, his love was shed. When I lost sight of you and saw the Christ instead. Hell is for real. Heaven is too. May we be God's instruments of showing Jesus. And may we do everything we can to ensure that people have the opportunity to see Christ and have a meaningful encounter with Him. Amen. Let's pray together.